You're listening to The Movement, a Holy Family School of Faith podcast. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and get started uh, to be respectful of your time. It's, uh, it's so good to see all you guys here. My name is Sebastian D'Amico. I work for the Holy Family School of Faith. Um, if you're f- familiar with School of Faith, if you're not familiar with School of Faith, School of Faith is a non-for-profit that exists to teach people about the Catholic faith, to, how, to know why it's beautiful, how to grow in it, and how to share it. Um, we do a number of things in the diocese. We're not affiliated directly with the diocese, but we work with and for the bishop as, as much as we possibly can um, because we feel that's where God has called us to. And the, the, the reason that this particular class came about, I have been teaching high school for the last, this will be my 14th year teaching high school. And uh, one of the things that meant a lot to me in high school well, it was actually what I didn't get in high school, which was an explanation for why we believe what we do um, as Catholics. And I needed specifically a rational explanation for it. When I got that in college, my jaw was on the floor. And I thought, gosh, I wish I wish I'd gotten that earlier. And uh, when I when I realized that the head, the, the intellect was supposed to go with the heart and those things were those were both designed by God to fit together. Man, that, that was a, a novum for me. And in, in, in the last years, I've gotten to teach apologetics classes to, my, to some of my students when I taught seniors. Um, and, I, the, and as you start doing this stuff, you actually have to, to learn it. Go figure, right? Um, and that's, that's where I really um, gained a, even deeper love for it. And, and, and even a deeper appreciation for the dialogue that has to happen between believers and people that are... Uh, struggling with belief, whatever, wherever they find themselves. And this course is obviously open to anyone. So if you find yourself in here, yourself being uh, someone who's kind of on the fence, welcome. If you're here because you just want to learn more, welcome. Um, and if you're here on behalf of someone who's dear to you, that, that is struggling, that you wish you could articulate better for them, we're going to pray for them. And in this class, we'll talk about things that might be useful in the conversation. But, and I'll say this at the beginning of every class. The most important thing when we are sharing our faith is our, is our charity and our witness of, of love for the person in front of us. That means not primarily teaching them. It means listening to them and asking questions. That is by far the most effective thing you can do. Now, it would be unfair to say, well, just go ask questions and love people and never give some equipping of, well, what would you say if this comes up? That's, we're going to talk about those things. But it is important to say you can get very, very far without being an expert in this stuff. That said, God gave us intellects, and we're supposed to use them to find him and to help others find him. So on that, with that introduction, that's, that's why we're here. Um, and we'll, the way I, I like to do these things is to have time for you guys to, to interact and to ask questions with each other and with me. That's how I like, I, I like teaching that way. Um, so with that, let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, in whom we live, move, and have our being, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of who you are and who you have made us to be. Human beings on a journey to to come to know your love for us. We ask that you be with us this evening, that you bless our time and make it fruitful, and to be especially with those people that we care about the most, wherever they may be at, 
especially if they're um, especially if they're far from you and and if that weighs on us heavily. So we entrust all of this to Our Lady as we pray a Hail Mary. O oh, grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of Peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I like to state when, when, whenever we start, what the objectives of this particular lesson are. Um, I've got three objectives for our time together tonight. Number one, I'd like you to be able to give an answer of why the question of God's existence matters. That may seem very self-evident, but, um, but it's worth reflecting on why that topic matters. Secondly, I want us to be able to define a word, um, a philosophical word called reductionism. Reductionism. And thirdly, I want, to be able, I want us to be able to identify different forms of reductionism in atheistic arguments or agnostic arguments. As we go through this particular course, one of the things that's very important for, for the conversation about God's existence is to, to note that we're going to have to get our minds around philosophy. One of the biggest contentions in our modern culture about God's existence comes from this rather silly um, argument between science and religion. Um, it's, it's only, I say silly, not because the, the people that engage in it are silly. I'm not, I don't mean it that way. I mean that the fact that there, there seems to be a disagreement between religion and science, it's heartbreaking because those two things are meant to go together. The, the problem has been that we've lost the mitigating discipline of philosophy. Once philosophy really started not being in our common vocabulary, it opened the door to a lot of confusion between science and religion. And when that happens, like for our young people when they're watching YouTube videos who don't have any formation in philosophy, and then they just hear things, well, it's very easy to get swayed. And there are, there are certain people um, that would call themselves atheists or agnostic that are very good evangelists for atheism and agnosticism. They're very, very good at it. The, you can, if you just Googled, put, get, on, get on Google and, and YouTube and just say atheism and just watch the videos that come out. They're short, they're catchy, there's visuals. It's persuasive. It's persuasive. So if, if we aren't ready to, to come to the floor with this, it's, we're, we're just going to keep losing ground on it. And, and they've, they've gained quite an amount of ground. And that's, not, uh, that's something that we should be able to enter into a conversation with. But to do that, we're going to have to get comfortable with philosophy on some level. Tonight, we're going to look at one of, the, uh, one of the most important tools of modern atheism. And it's something called reductionism. Hence, that's why we're going to define what that is. And we're going, to talk, we're going to talk about identifying it. Because if we can get our heads around what this means, it's going to, give, it's going to equip us for a number of conversations that we might have with people. So it's kind, of, it's kind of like, it's just one of the most important tools we can have in our conversations. So before we do that, though, oh, and as you look down, you'll see those objectives are here. You'll also see key vocabulary. Um, so you'll always have a couple of words 
I'm a teacher by trade, so this stuff, it, it's important for me. It, it, a lot of teaching comes down to giving people words, uh, words to use because it gives us categories in our thinking. The more words you have, the more precise we can be when we speak with others. Um, and the first thing I would like you to do in this little space between the vocab terms, I'd like you to take a moment and I want you to write down, without peeking further or reading further, why does the topic of God's existence matter to you? I'm going to give you two minutes to write down any answers you have. Why does the topic of God's existence matter to you? Who heard a good answer? Who heard an answer that surprised them or they thought that was thoughtful or well-spoken? Why does it matter? Why does God's existence matter? Yeah. Yeah, rat him out. Go ahead. What did he say? God created me. He has a plan for me. I just want to make sure I'm doing my Yeah, yeah. If God exists, uh, maybe a very practical question becomes, does he have a plan for my life? What else? What are reasons why God's existence matters to you guys? Festus. The flip side of that is if there's no God, there's no plan. Yeah. So you can ask the deeper question, is there any plan to life at all? This question, the answer to the question of whether there's God has a very direct impact on the question of is there a plan at all in the first place? And that, that's a very deep human question. It's a great point. Why else? What are some other things that you heard that you thought were good? Yeah? Teresa? Um, just about, you know, like she's saying, the kids have watched the videos and they are out here saying everything that you just how you entered the beginning of the class. They're saying all the scientific stuff, but not coming from that philosophical angle. And what are we supposed to say back to them? Maybe not trying to be a dead rebuttal all the time, but just to help them understand. Yeah. How do I help them understand? Good. Other reasons why God's existence matters. Yeah. Um, what's going to happen? I mean, our hope in heaven. What's, I mean, this is it. Yeah. It matters. <laughs> what happens when I die? That is a deep, that's a very practical question. Is there anything after death? Um, notice that's a, that's a question that impacts every human being. So this becomes a, a very interesting question. And whether there's a God has a lot to do uh, or would have a direct impact to this, or at least would give si significant evidence <laughs> toward what might, ha might or might not happen after death. Good. Why else? What else? I just heard because I believe in him and I wish everybody else did. Yeah. It, it's made a difference to me. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. How should, or how does he say, does he say, how does he say I should behave? Why? 
Or does he say anything about how I should behave? The question of God matters deeply on that level. It's, it's very practical. In other words, how do I live my day-to-day -day life? Should I pay my taxes? Should I listen to my mom? Should I take care of my grandma? All, all of these questions, right? Should I put up with my neighbor who doesn't, every time I see him, he just doesn't shut up. And so I have to be there in those conversations and I'm stuck there for 30 minutes. Like, if, if there's no God, I don't have to be in those conversations. So I might as well, I might just dispense with it. I could be rude to him. That's very practical. That matters to me. That's a half hour of my life I get back. But if there is a God, maybe that, that changes. Maybe I don't get to brush him off. That, that, that's important. Any other questions or any, any other reasons why God's existence might matter? Yeah. Well, I want to know when I pray that someone's listening. Yeah, when I pray. <laughs> Is anyone listening? Important. I gave my, my best college try to give a paragraph of every reason I could think of of why God's existence matters. I want you to underline anything in here that maybe you didn't think of. Maybe, there's, maybe you thought of everything, but here you go. The existence of God matters because, depending on how you answer it, it sets up a host of answers to other very interesting and potentially life-changing questions. For example, some other questions may be, is there an afterlife? How should I live my life today? Is there meaning to suffering? One that we didn't mention. Is there a human soul? If God does exist, can I know him? Can I communicate with him? Has he tried to communicate with us? Is there any meaning at all to this life beyond what I think and perceive? Why am I here at all? All these questions are profoundly human and they deserve to be asked. People have the right to hear all possible answers to those questions. That is a fundamental human right to get to answer, to ask those questions. This is, this topic, this, this particular topic is of great interest and importance for people that are talking and, sh and wanting to share the faith because this gives us immediate common ground with anybody to ask the question, why, why am I here? Is there meaning to suffering? Man, that one strikes at the heart of most people's lives incredibly deeply, incredibly deeply because if suffering hasn't already impacted their life yet, it's just a matter of time before it does. So that question is meaningful. Note this as well. When people experience suffering, there is an opening to ask some of these questions that previously has not been there. It may be just being patient until those things happen. And then when those things happen, not opportunistically, but in a real loving way, to, to, to find yourself with that person face to face and say, How? Where is God in this for us? These are important questions. This is why this, this question matters so, so, so much, right? Okay, with that, let's dive into this, the meat and potatoes of our lesson here. Um, the first thing I want to do is give you a little introduction in the philosophy of how we know. So philosophy is a word that we get scared of. Um, 
I know I just had you turn to the second page, but if you looked on the first page, I have a definition of the word philosophy. Philosophy is the stud, or excuse me, the study of human experience through the use of reason, usually with the classical branches of metaphysics, ethics, epistemology, and logic. I'll read that again. The study of human experience through the use of reason, usually with the classical branches of metaphysics, ethics, and epistemology. One more time. It's the study of human experience through the use of reason. I think, in my experience, and maybe yours corroborates this, but when we hear philosophy, when the average person, I think, hears philosophy, they think something that people in like universities, that they do this for a living because they get paid a lot of money or enough money to live to do something that doesn't matter at all. And that's why we keep them in the colleges so they don't bother everyone else. If you look at, if you look at the definition that I provide you of philosophy, it's the study of human experience. In other words, any human that's ever experienced anything and reflected on it is already in the process of doing philosophy. Philosophy is a human thing. It's a deeply human thing. Perhaps this is already obvious to us, but if someone says, ah, philosophy, who needs it? I just want practical things. That's already a philosophy. You see what I mean? Philosophy is what, it's part of what it means to be human. We experience things and we think about them. That's what we do. Now, we could distract ourselves from thinking about them, maybe. Uh, that's already a choice in philosophy. We can't get around this. So, again, this is why it's so important to talk about it. There's some words in here that are probably unfamiliar to us. Metaphysics, ethics, epistemology, and logic. Metaphysics, we'll talk about some of that because you need to know some of that for talking about God's existence. Metaphysics is the study of being. The study of being. Of, how, of, why, of anything that is. Metaphysics is the study of being. Uh, ethics is the study of how we should behave. It's morality. Ethics is about morality. How should I behave? The question of how does God say anything about how I should behave, that's a question of ethics. That one's a little bit closer to, we, we're more familiar with that term usually in pop culture. Epistemology is a scary word. It means the study of how we know. The study of how we know things. And logic is the, is the art of reasoning, how we reason. Some of us may have had classes in logic at some, at some stage in our life. Tonight, I'm gonna to talk to you about one of these branches. I'm gonna to talk to you about epistemology, the study of how we know. It is very foundational to everything that we do, and it's most of the problems we have with atheism, atheism that's in our culture, whether it's Richard Dawkins, or if it's um, Christopher Hitchens, or any of, the, uh, any of the host of atheists that are on YouTube, most of those things can be answered very simply if you and I have a basic understanding in epistemology, in the study of how we know things. So with that, let's look at the second page of this. 
how do we know things? How do we know things? We know truth in three basic ways. Three basic ways. The first way that we know things is through logic. We can use our natural human reason to deduce other truths from the things we already know. Sounds technical. It's, it's not really that hard. Imagine, for example, if I know that Socrates was a man, and if I know that all men are mortal, then I can know with certainty that Socrates was mortal. That's handy because we didn't have to do any forensic investigation. We didn't have to go dig up Socrates' grave to make sure he was mortal. You, we did that through logic. You never, I don't think anyone here has met Socrates. And I don't think anyone's been to Greece to check his grave, correct? Correct. But we can know that because we're logical people. Math and, and math rests in this realm of logic. But there's also, like, the whole art of making logical argument is from, is from this area. Sadly, it's something we don't teach very much. This is where philosophy really lives. Like, the, when people are doing any kind of philosophy, it's usually it's the use of logic that's doing it. That's the first way we can know. What's the first way we can know? What's the first way? We, I need to hear everyone. What's the first way we know? Logic. Logic. There you go. The second way we can know is through our experience and observation. Our experience and observation. We can use our five senses, our sight, our touch, our smell, our taste, our, the sound that we hear, to observe the world around us. And we can also observe our psychological, we can make psychological observations about ourselves and our feelings. In its purest form, the scientific method and modern science lives here in this form of knowledge. It's where you go out and you study things. My, my, my wife, when she goes crazy with the kids, when it's nice out, she can take them on a nature walk and she can just say, let's go look at things. And people are entertained by this. My little people are entertained by it. I have four kids, by the way. They're all under seven, so my life is, is, is pretty is busy at the moment um, with those kind of things. They can go out into nature and they can just... They can have a little plastic baggie and they can fill it full of all kinds of interesting things they find on the sidewalk. They're exercising. They're like little scientists at that moment. They're just walking through the world. They're using their senses. They're touching things. They're picking them up. At, a, at the most sophisticated level, this becomes the scientific method, right? You study things. You make observations. You make hypotheses. You make guesses. You test that out. It's all just observation. So the first way we know is... Logic. The second way is experience and observation. Good. It can also be my own experiences, right? I got my uh, I got my feelings hurt in kindergarten because someone made fun of me for being a little hefty and a little chunky, right? I can make observations not just of the outside world. I can make them interiorly of myself too. Like I felt small when they when when Stephen was making fun of me for that, right? I can I can point to that as well. So it's not just physical things that can be observed. Third way, um, third way, and is through the testimony of others. The testimony of others. We can be told things by other people that we trust. After all, it would be difficult to experience everything in the world. At some point, I have to rely on the words of others to report what they know. As an example, the study of history lives 
here. So imagine this, you come home um, and someone in your family says, hey, tell me about your day. And you tell them about your day. They, as a, usually as a point of uh, departure, they're just gonna trust what you say. They're gonna say, I, I know you to be an honest person. I'm gonna trust that you're reporting things as best you possibly can. Notice, you didn't experience what they experienced that day. You weren't there. And you can't do it logically. In other words, you can't just take a piece of paper out and go, all men are mortal. Uh, Socrates was a man, so you had a bad day today. Right? That doesn't, you can't do that with a pen and paper. You have to rely on someone else's testimony. The thing is, with a human being, you need all three, and most of us use all three of these forms of, of information all the time. All the time we do it. And what's more, the church says you can use all three to learn about God. And this is pretty cool. That the, church, the church says you can use logic and reason to figure out that God exists. That's where all of the proofs for God's existence come from. They come from the first form of knowledge, from logic. So when maybe you've heard of St. Thomas Aquinas's five proofs for God's existence. Or maybe you've heard of Aristotle's first mover or the first cause. Those are all efforts that human beings have done throughout history to use logic, a pen and paper, a pencil and paper, or ink and papyrus, whatever it is, right? To figure out that there's some things that we can see and there, we can reason from that that there must be a God. But the church also says you don't have to be locked into that you could also experience God directly. Come pray with me. Come pray with me. Let's, let's pray a rosary together. Let's pray as a family together. Let's go to church together. Let's go to adoration. There's people, every, this is so amazing. I've got some friends, they're called the Apostles of the Interior Life. They're, they're an Italian order. And one of the things that they do a lot in Italy, because their cities are built this way, they have these churches that are built on these piazzas, right? And if you've been to Europe, you've seen this, right? The piazzas are still places where people gather socially in the evenings. So they'll do this thing. Well, they'll, they will set up adoration in, in a church, and they will have nice, like, quiet, meditative music going on. And the, the apostles will go out into the piazza and just invite people in to pray. And they invite people in, and people go in, like strangers on the street. And they come out, and they say, what is that thing in the magnifying looking glass thing? I never felt peace like I've felt in that room. What is that? That's the experience of God. Many of you have probably had experiences of God, things that happen in your life, and you're like, my life was never the same after that. Maybe it was a retreat. Maybe it was a homily. Maybe it was a class. Maybe it was some tragic thing, but something happened and something broke through, and you knew, you knew that something spoke to you. It's very hard to communicate that. You can't prove that logically, but you know it because you experienced it. So the best thing you could say is, hey, you want to experience it? Come with me. Come with me. Don't ever forget that. If you've got someone in your life that, that is, it just doesn't believe in God, invite them to an adoration chapel with you. Even if it sounds crazy, invite them to go. Invite them to go. You never know what might happen. If the person's open to it, God does amazing things. And the third thing you can do is you can hear about God from the testimony of others. 
This one is really basic, but it's obvious that in Christianity, this is how the whole thing worked. Jesus came, he found 12 buddies, 11 of whom betrayed him and were gone when he died, except for the one who also ran off and then came back to watch the crucifixion, right? He rose from the dead. He, those, those people, those 12, as well as several hundred others were told in, in, Paul's, God, in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, so they all saw the risen Jesus. And then they went out to the world and said, we've seen something. In other words, they gave their testimony. Just like you gave your testimony today to your family of how your day went, they gave their testimony of how they experienced God. And they were willing to die for it. They didn't die rich. They didn't die popular. They died poor and destitute for the first 300 years. Important. You know, for the first 300 years, the majority of popes were all martyrs. Important detail to know just of church history. Just keep that in your back pocket. It's handy because people say sometimes the church has always been corrupt. Admittedly, we've got a lot of corruption in our church. No one's going to argue that. But the first 300 years, if you were a pope, it was like a death sentence. So you weren't signing up for being a pope for getting rich or getting powerful. History, good thing to know. Keep it in your back pocket. The point is, you can know things and you can know God from the testimony of others. I want you to take a moment. Take a moment. And I want you to think about these three ways of knowing. What's the first one? What's the second one? What's the third? And the third one? Testimony of others. I want you to take a moment. And if you can, think of any times you've experienced God through one of those three means. And I want you to write them down next to it. I'll give you a, a minute to do that. I want you to turn to a different neighbor, and in 60 seconds or less, I want you to give a brief synopsis of one of those ways you've experienced God. 60 seconds. Mark, set, go. All right. If you are someone that has experienced God through logic, I want you to stand up. I just want to see. If you think you've experienced God through logic, stand up. Two, three, four, five. Okay. Note the ratios. This is ju- it's just important to, to see this for a moment. Thank you. How many of you guys have experienced God directly through your senses in some way, shape, or form? Fascinating, right? Okay. Um, how many of you have experienced God through the testimony of others? Good. Have a seat. What do you observe about those numbers? What are some things you observe about those numbers? We're light on logic. We're light on logic. <laughs> Maybe. Evidence. Evidence is needed. What do you mean? Well, just you need to use your senses. Maybe God provides that in some way. Yeah, possibly. What are some other things you notice about? What do those numbers make you reflect on? Think about those ratios. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, and of course, that's the first one. If we're trying to defend our faith with somebody, my friends that are atheists and you know like to challenge me on stuff, that's the first one because they say, "Yeah, you can't, you can't tell me the logic of." And of course, they can kind of try to dismiss the rest. Well, yeah, you know, the apostles. This is all a big story. You know, yeah. Like that. Experience and observations, they can just throw mud at you, whatever. 
discount whatever you say. They can try to, yeah. It's yeah, true. If you could if you could argue logically, they'd be they'd be befuddled. Possibly. Possibly. What else? Best you know, it's so common, you know, testimony of others are experiencing ourselves. You know, it seems to me like breathing. So all those people who deny that there was God existence, I can't believe God has just sort of cut them out of the pie. Mm -hmm. Either they're denying these experiences or ignoring them. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be open and receptive. Yes. Can you expand on that, please? What do you mean by that? Why is that so important? <laughs> uh, well, okay. Uh, all right, let's go with uh, the teenager has an emotional wall built up. So she's not going to receive anything I'm throwing at her. Yeah. So she's not, she's just not going to experience that until yeah. she lets those walls down, opens herself up. To it's, receive it's true. Those testimony, yeah. experiences even. That's very insightful. Um, I wonder sometimes if you're a logically, if you're bent towards logic just by your makeup, it's easy to forget that insight. And the way through that wall is probably not going to be with logic leading. It's probably going to be relational and charitable to bring the walls down first, M maybe in some way. I, I, don't have, I don't have any magic bullets, but that's that's an, an insightful thing that you've hit on there. What other things does that do? Those ratios make you think of, or does it raise any questions for you? Yeah, Sally. Uh, that big word that you used earlier is it epistemology. Yeah. And it makes me think. Okay, we need to learn a little bit more about what that means. And yeah. It is. It is really important. It's 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 an intimidating word, but the concept is very simple, right? We learn things through, what's the first way? Logic, Logic second way through? Experience. 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 And observation and? Testimony. Testimony of others. Now, here's, here's the real kicker. Um, a lot of times, the, the primary way that atheists work is they reject two out of the three of those. And one of the things that if you can just get someone to bust out of that, to say, try to experience God in some other way, it, that's a very powerful win. It's a very powerful win. This is, gets us to our next word, which is reductionism. Reductionism. If you hear, just hearing the word reductionism, at the root of that is the word reduction, right? And it means to reduce something complex down to something incredibly simple. Usually, usually it's something that's that really needs to be complex. If you look at the vocab term, it's on the front. Some of you are already reading it. The philosophical tendency of some to simplify a complex phenomenon down to just one of its elements. So in other words, when, if we're thinking about these three ways of knowing, right? If you've got logic, um, sense experience, and testimony, one of the moves of typical of atheism today is to hone in on one of these. Any guesses as to which one it is? No, it's this. They, this is why, because modern atheism is obsessed with science. And science lives here. 
This is why you hear atheists say things like, prove it to me. I need to run an experiment. I want to see evidence for God's existence, right? You've heard that before? Where is the experiment? There's actually a, a line from an astronaut who, when we launched him into space, famously said, I've been to the heavens and there's no God. I didn't see him there, which is kind of ironic. How could you look at all that and not think of God? But at any rate, but what he's saying is this. I saw no physical evidence of him. This is the reductionism of modern atheism. It's where they say, the only kind of knowledge I'm going to accept is the stuff of sense experience. The only kind of knowledge I'm going to accept is sense experience. That's reductionism, and it's specifically reduction down to the scientific level. So, I'm going to do a little experiment here for a moment. If you know that, if someone is saying, if I can't see it, I don't believe it, I'm going to give you 20 seconds to write down a possible response to that. Take 20 seconds and write down your best college try. What would you say to that? Turn to your neighbor, share your best college try to that question. What would you say to someone who said that to you? Who heard a good answer? Festus, tell me what you heard. No, 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 I want you to, I want you to articulate it. What did you hear? I, I heard that the people who, who steal a consecrated host for black mass uh -huh. frequently can tell if the host has been consecrated or not. Okay. The people that, that steal hosts for black masses can typically tell. So if we were to drill down further, um, it sounds like what you're saying is, how do you explain other supernatural phenomenon? Right? If you're going like, to generalize that, you could point to a lot of other supernatural phenomenon and say, okay, but what about this? Well, what's different about this? That's one possible response. Who else heard a good response? The wind? What were you going to say? What would you say? We can't see the wind, but Okay. But what would the scientists say to that? Yeah. I, I could measure it. I could measure that. See what I mean? So they're going to they're gonna push back, probably going to push, if I were an atheist, that's how I'd push back against that. I can put up a, a windmill and measure how strong the wind's blowing. It's okay. That's, that's how we learn. We, gotta, we have to start talking about this stuff, right? And, and trying these arguments out. What else? Yeah, John. How do you say, you know, do you see love? Can you see love? When you, you experience love or feel love, how can you, can't see it? Do you mean, and even like you said in that, can you really measure? Can you measure love? Now that one's an interesting one. Are there any things other than love that are kind of like that? What else is like love that you can't see, you can't touch, you can't measure? Sadness, what were you going to say? Your stream of consciousness, good. Mercy. Say again. Mercy. How do you measure mercy? How about trust? Trust. If someone, if someone said, I only believe in senses, it, you may be actually cutting out things like love because you can't prove love scientifically. Justice works the same way, right? 
because justice is an abstract concept, one that most humans care deeply about. But what are we doing here? You know what we're actually, this, this form of, of argument, what we're doing is, all right, my friend, my, my reductionist friend, I'll take your word at it. But if you were to live that way, I mean, really live that way, I wonder if you're living consistently, Mr. Reductionist. Because if you really only believe the things you could measure, wow, that's a pretty narrow understanding of the world. You see what you're doing? You're like, you're kicking at the reductionism. You're saying, okay, if you believe that, then, then why this, that, and the other? Why would you believe in justice if you can't measure that? Here's another response. It's, it's a little sophisticated, but it's worth knowing. The statement, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write this on the board, right? I'll write it word for word and I'll have you guys. The statement, I only believe what science can prove The statement, I only believe what science can prove, is not provable by science. The phrase, I only believe what science can prove, or I only believe what I can see, is not provable by science. It's a statement of philosophy. And where did, where did philosophy live? Here in logic. Look at what we're saying. This, this is weird. This is, this is hard because you actually you got to get your head around what this is what we're getting at here. But when someone says, I only believe what science can prove, you, there's no scientific experiment that you can run, and this is what's going to get spit out. This, you will never find this statement in a test tube. You can't measure this with scientific experiments. This statement is a statement of philosophy. It's, what's the word, Anne, okay. Annette? It's self-refuting. It's self-refuting. It's like a snake that's chasing its own tail. The second someone enters into this and says, I only believe what science can prove, that's interesting. What scientific, what scientific experiment did you use to come up with that? Because I'm pretty sure that's not scientific. And if that's not scientific, you just contradicted your very same statement. Now, let me be honest. That is not going to make someone believe in God. Like, proving that. Because someone, and if they're really stubborn like me, they'll be like, so what? Right? And they'll, they'll move on. But what you've done is you put a little stick of dynamite and you just lit it in, in, their, in their mind that they're actually doing something illogical. They're actually saying something that they don't, they're not actually living out. They're being inconsistent. 
And that's an important move to know. That's an important thing to be able to point out. Ultimately, when we talk about these reductions, when someone reduces everything to one thing, it's actually not very livable. And the job of, if you're in dialogue with someone about that, to lovingly show that inconsistency, that's the art of apologetics. Say that one more time. Yes. The love, gosh, I'm not sure I can remember it at this point. Um, the whole thing of being able to show someone the inconsistency in what they're saying is the art of apologetics. Because you're not trying to, you're not trying to make a, a knockdown, drag out fight. That never works anyway. It's in love showing these little things. And it, it, it's, it's hard to do that because the wall, emotional walls may be up. They may not be ready to hear it. Or if you, they hear it, they might fight against it. Or they, may not, they might just not want to accept it, even though they know it. That's, it's, it's a human thing, and it's messy. But this is, this is one of the ways out of this little conundrum of this reductionism. Yeah, John. Similar to like when someone says, there are no truths, but yet the statement itself is saying that's a true statement. Right? Yes. So therefore, it refutes itself. It's exact, that's, ex that's a great one um, to know. Sometimes you hear that culturally, right? There is no such thing as one truth. Really? Sounds like you just said one thing that was a truth, which means you're being illogical. I'm not trying to be annoying, but that doesn't make sense. You see what I mean? But you know, as we're talking about this stuff, everything I know, it's not, the point is not to win the argument. Actually, in some cases, the point is to stalemate them. What you want to show is when someone wants to play the game of, oh, I'm just going to use logic. I'm just using science. I'm just this. You just put the you just put the pieces hopefully in a place where they realize, man, I can't settle the issue with just this. Maybe there's other ways I have to start looking at the question of God. Now you've got it. Now you've done it because you've removed some obstacles and opened up a heart that might be receptive. And we're back to that word you used. But it really takes a little bit of knowledge and study with this stuff. And I, by the way, I don't expect you to have heard, if this is the first time you've heard these things, this is weird. No one talks like this normally. That is okay. Studying it is part of, the, part of what we have to do and practicing it. What did he say last night? I'll, re I'll review it with you next week. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's imp it's important because maybe at some point you've practiced it enough and you can share it with someone. And God can use it however he needs to use it. I tell my students at, in, in the high school, one of the hardest things to do with students, huh, is to make the classroom a place that it's okay to be wrong. That's really, it's really critical. It's really critical, though, that we do that. In fact, no real learning, very, a lot less learning happens when, when we have this fear of being wrong. Because, and it's, it's so crazy. If, if I can't be wrong publicly, then the teacher can't help me. 
<laughs> and if the teacher can't help me, I can't grow as fast as I might. Um, so I recognize that by doing this, this activity, this, this might actually push us beyond where we're comfortable. That's, that's how we grow. And with this stuff, man, we got we got a lot of catching up to do. Um, so th there is some work here involved, but that's, that's why we're here. So that, that said, let's go over these answers. I don't believe God, I don't believe in God because science hasn't yet come up with an experiment to prove his existence. This quote is reducing How'd you guys finish that sentence? It's a brave, brave volunteer. This quote is reducing all belief down to what science can currently prove. Yeah, good. How many of you guys had that? Good. You're getting the hang of it. There's a reductionism down to science. Um, that's also called scientism. Scientism. Um, it's, a, it's a word. It's really good to have that vocab term in your back pocket because the church has nothing against science. Nothing against science. In fact, the topic of another day, the modern scientific method is actually directly traceable to a Christian worldview. If you want to talk more about that, you should come, come see me after class. I'll explain it more if you're interested in that. But there's nothing wrong with science. The only time it becomes problematic is when science turns into scientism. When, in other words, when I reduce all knowledge down to just the scientific. And if you know it, if you know what to look for, you can spot it a mile away. It's in virtually every, it's in so many modern atheistic texts. They just, they tend to boil everything down to that. Okay, next one. Uh, right and wrong are really just the product of where you grew up and who taught you. This quote is reducing, let me finish that statement. Good. That's, I like most of that answer. It is reducing almost all of something down to environment. Morality. It's morality. It's reducing all morality and right and wrong down to environment. You hear that one a lot. You hear that one a lot. Sometimes people will say um, something like this. Morality, right and wrong, it just depends where you grew up and who taught you. If you grew up in this time and this place, this was okay. If you grew up in this time and place, this was okay. So morality must to be totally dependent on where you live and when you live. There is an element of truth to that. But there's something very, I, there's a confusion that happens there. Um, we learn, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. We, in school, we learn two kinds of truths. We learn truths that are true, no matter where you are, like math. And we learned truths that are true but might be different, like the rules of baseball. Like baseball, we run three bases, but it could have been four bases. You know, like it really could have been. There's nothing saying it had to be three. I mean, it looks better when it's three, right? But the, the point is, there are some things that are true because they're always true. And some things are true and they could change. And it's because we learn morality in school, sometimes we assume that morality is one of those truths that can change. But if you look at all of human history, you find a remarkable thing amongst all cultures that morality is actually very stable across a lot of time and space. There are things that vary, but you'll never find a culture that actually values betrayal. You'll never find a culture that values turning your back on the people that love you the most. 
you might as well, C.S. Lewis says, you might as well imagine a world where two plus two equals five. That is actually evidence that morality is something deeper. What were you gonna say? Sure. Um, here's, this is one from C.S. Lewis, actually. Um, some people say that it's, depending where you live, we drive on the right side of the road, right? That, that's different in England and it's different here. So you think, oh, well, a teacher teaches it to us, so it must be variant from where you are. But you also learn things from teachers that are true like math. Does that make sense? I should always trust C.S. Lewis better. There you go. I should use that one. Um, next one. If God existed, he should show himself once and for all. This quote is reducing what to what? It is the same as the first one. Good. Yeah, it's, it's another version of the same kind. I put that in here intentionally because you'll hear the same kind of reductionism phrased a million different ways. If, in fact, you'll hear mostly that one. Um, the next one is a little more, it's more complicated. Um, here you go, it's from Bertrand Russell, famous atheist. Um, man is the product of causes which had no provision for the end um, that they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collisions of atoms. No fire, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve the individual beyond the grave. All the labor of ages and all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Kind of a depressing quote. What's the reductionism here? This quote is reducing everything to chance. What's the subject of the very, what's the very first word in this paragraph? Man. The, the thing that's being reduced is humanity. What is he reducing humanity to? The body. Yeah. He's reducing humanity down to just the body. That's a, that's a subtler form of reduction. It's a little bit different variation of it. Human beings, but it's really a, a variation of scientism all again anyway, right? The human being is nothing more than what science says so. And science says the body is just human atoms and electrons. So that must be all you are. You're, you're soulless. You die, like once you die, you extinguish and there's nothing else to you. It's a reductionism of the human person. The first person to discover the human soul with reason alone was Socrates. The answer, the answer is there are some people that have proved, that think you can prove the human soul with logic and philosophy. So, and here you, so here we learn about the soul just like we did with God, right? Through all three different ways, right? We can use logic. We can, we, we can talk about that some other, some other day. How did Socrates think that you could know that you had a soul without necessarily bringing faith into it? But we also experience it through faith. So God tells us, hey, I made you with a body and a soul. So these two things match. And you can experience the fact that you have a soul as well. So just like, just like the other thing, you can know it through all three of them. The soul is not a matter of faith, modestly. That, they, these things come as a package deal often. The belief in a soul comes along with the belief in a God. Um, as, as we get 
a little bit more into the uh, belief of God, we can talk about some of how we know that the human being has a soul. Yeah, it tends to go that way. I won't say never because there's a, a bunch of very quirky variations out there. But it's very, it's hard to see otherwise. It's a very popular way of going. This is why art is so powerful. Artists have a sense of, of the soul in a way that others don't. One of the roots to this sometimes is through that. At any rate, we are at our time, and that's quite a bit of material. Um, we obviously, you can, I can leave the rest to your reading. It's actually pretty self-explanatory given what we've already talked about. I'll hang around for a little bit if you guys have questions. Thank you so much. Uh, you guys have been great sports. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Movement. To find out more about Holy Family School of Faith's mission to lead others to Jesus through friendship, good conversation, and the rosary, head over to our website at schooloffaith.com.